back to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. We have a returning guest. We have Mark D. White. He's professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at the College of Staten Island, CUNY, where he teaches courses in philosophy, economics, and law, and is also a member of the economics doctoral faculty at the Graduate Center of CUNY. His books include A Philosopher Reads Marvel Comics, Thor, A Philosopher Reads Marvel Comics' Civil War, The Virtues of Captain America, Batman and Ethics, the Oxford Handbook of Ethics and Economics, and a philosopher reads Marvel Comics' Daredevil, From the Beginning to Born Again. His newest book is called Rights versus Antitrust, Challenging the Ethics of the Competition Law. Mark, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be back, guys. Absolutely. And so Mark writes in this book, in arguing against the entire field of antitrust and competition law, I have set myself quite the task. After all, antitrust is a largely unquestioned part of law and regulation in most developed countries around the world. In the United States, antitrust law has been raised to the level of importance normally reserved for the seminal documents of liberal democracy itself. For example, in 1972, the Supreme Court pronounced that antitrust laws in general, and the Sherman Act in particular, are the Magna Carta of free enterprise. They are as important to the preservation of economic freedom and our free enterprise system as the Bill of Rights is to the protection of our fundamental personal freedoms. Mm -hmm. And the freedom guaranteed each and every business, no matter how small is the freedom to compete, to assert with vigor, imagination, devotion, and ingenuity, whatever economic muscle it can muster. Earlier, the court called the Sherman Act a comprehensive, char a comprehensive charter of economic liberty aimed at preserving free and unfettered competition as the rule of trade. Indeed, according to political scientist Mark Allen Eisner, antitrust was often referred to as the constitution for the American economy, mm -hmm. reflecting the centrality it has come to occupy in the firmament of economic regulation. Although liberals and conservatives maintain their unique focus and emphasis for antitrust, most scholars and policymakers across the political spectrum support some degree of antitrust enforcement. So, I mean, just for our audience, for my understanding of it, is uh, when we think about the difference between the monopolies and antitrust, obviously not uh, referring to the board game here. Uh, uh, so, you know, monopolies are businesses that essentially like gobble up other businesses. So they are mergers and they essentially become a big conglomerate, right? Or big conglomerates. And then with trusts, I mean, when they kind of band together, essentially what they do is they kind of weed out the competition. So, I mean, Mark, what you're essentially saying here seems kind of counterintuitive, especially because as you are too, I know. So like, especially because I'm a liberal, but it seems super counterintuitive because from my understanding of it, uh, trust actually sort of fosters free enterprise. I'm sorry, antitrust fosters free enterprise. So when you think of the fact that business Businesses kind of have these nefarious ways of getting together, uh, you know, controlling prices essentially, and uh, even controlling products and you know distributions and whatnot. I mean, the idea here is that the reason why you know we have these laws in place is because it helps other the little guy right compete. So, can you tell us now about your perspective and how it's actually counterintuitive to what my intuition tells me? Okay, uh, that that's a lot to respond to. Um. Basically, the, the way I look at it, mm -hmm. and, and you're right, and this is counterintuitive, and there's not a lot of people that, that say this, but the way I look at it is that, you know, you referred to, you know, actions that are in violation of antitrust law as nefarious. So let, let's start there, is that, you know, part of my book argues that they're, they're not nefarious at all. They may be harmful. They may be, um, you know, devious or underhanded or, you know, nefarious probably isn't a bad term. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the issue is, are they wrong? Are they wrong in a way that they should be limited by the law or penalized if they're actually done? 
And what I argue in the book is that all of the actions that are targeted by antitrust are perfectly valid exercises of basic property rights of business owners. Uh, and when I say basic property rights, I mean not any extreme or absolute version of property rights, but a very common sense view that, that businesses are free to do what they want with their assets, um, provided they don't violate the rights of anybody else. And that's where the, the characterization of these actions as nefarious kind of triggers a, a response in me in that no matter you know what, what impression we may have of these actions, whether it's price fixing or collusion or predatory pricing or whatever, they're, they're not violating anybody else's rights. They may be harming other people's interests, but there's a lot of things that that businesses do and all of us do every day that that harms other people's interests. That's just part of life. And, you know, if you have one business decides to raise their price, that harms the interests of customers that still like to shop at that business. Right. If you have a business that decides to close a location or a factory, that certainly harms people's interests. But no one would say that that violates anybody's rights because no one had a right to have the product at that certain price or the right to have that location of the business. Mm -hmm. So all of the, the actions that are forbidden by antitrust, while they may create harm, on the other hand, they can be seen as valid exercises of property rights that shouldn't be limited because they don't violate anybody else's rights. So that does seem to make sense from a rights perspective, but don't you think that, um, I don't know, if given free reign, businesses probably, you know, take advantage of either the consumer or price fixing or uh, predatory pricing, as you said, like, and like uh, more businesses would be, I wouldn't say incentivized because I wouldn't call it an incentive per se, but I mean, if you see an opportunity to get away with doing something like that in order to, uh, get essentially more profit, uh, why wouldn't you? Um, as yeah, essentially, you're, I think what you're saying is also like it's uh, the customer kind of gets shafted here. Well, I mean, if you can get away with shafting the customer, right, right. I, I agree that the, sh the customer at, at the end of it makes the choice whether or not to purchase that product if the price is raised. Of course, the, uh, the consumer has the autonomy. They can just decide, okay, I will not... Uh, conduct business with this particular company or sure. this business anymore. I completely agree. And I'm sure that uh, there, there's a, probably a balance from your perspective that uh, would, would arise from, you know, just that consumer, um, uh, consumer and business relationship, right? As far as that goes. But I mean, uh, what would happen if, let's say, a company decides to do predatory pricing and then sort of like, let's say at one point lowers the price for their product, makes it lower than their competition. Uh, competition no longer makes uh, money anymore. They're kind of out of the business. Now that they're out of the business, that that company that, uh, you know, lowered the prices before raises it again. And and like, how can we defend against? I, I was thinking the same thing. It's in the book. Yeah. yeah. Actually, you do give that example. Yeah. 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 Uh, again, that's a, lo a lot to respond to. Um, I mean, again, I, I don't want to base everything on how you're wording things, but how you're wording things really is kind of suggestive of what I'm fighting back against in my book. Right. You know, when you say that 
if antitrust law and, and, and if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if I if I'm misstating you, Alan, but I think you said if antitrust laws were relaxed, as I'm you know recommending, right. then businesses would have the incentive to, you know, perform more actions that would take advantage of customer or co- consumers or hurt consumers' interests. That's that's sort of the intuitive thought that right. comes to mind, and also I'm sure. just I'm also playing a sort of a devil's advocate position. Mm-hmm. Uh, not this isn't actually reflective of my own. <laughs> it's a good position. Well, no, no, just, no. Yeah. I get it. It's part of the yeah. argument. Yeah. Okay. But, but it, I mean, yes. You know, it, businesses pursue incentives to make profit. That's what businesses do. But they they have to do this within the the legal environment and within you know uh, common sense prohibitions against fraud and deceit and violence. So they, 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 what, what I like to think of businesses as doing, and this goes for consumers, workers, anybody in the economy, is you're able to do whatever you want as long as you don't violate the rights of others. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason I lead the book off with that common aphorism that you know your uh, my rights end where your nose begins. Right. Right. You know, so each of us in in a liberal democracy outside the realm of business should be free to do whatever we want, read whatever we want, see whoever we want, marry whoever we want, etc. Mm-hmm. As long as we're not violating anyone else's rights. And of course, that that begs the question of what everyone else's rights are. And I realize this doesn't answer anything. This just leads to more questions. Mm-hmm. But but the argument I'm making in the book is, is these various actions that are forbidden by antitrust do not actually violate anybody's rights. Mm. that that you know because usually antitrust is 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 considered to protect two groups one consumers and two smaller less efficient competitors and you know so the 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 little firm competing with the big firm or consumers buying from from firms right right and what i argue in the book is that again while while these groups interests may be set back by some of the actions that firms can take in violation of antitrust law right they don't have any well-defined rights over these outcomes that are violated so like i like i said before if one firm raises its price mm-hmm. it 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 hurts the interests of its consumers Right, okay, right. Whether they keep buying at the higher price or whether they have to go somewhere somewhere else and look for a lower price, it does set back their interests. And if two firms together fix a higher price, that's collusion. That's in violation of antitrust law. Mm-hmm. That that also violates the consumer's interests. But in neither case does the consumer have a right to that lower price that was violated by either of the actions. And the only thing that makes them different is that's two firms doing it together instead of one firm, which obviously is going to have a larger impact on consumers' well-being. Right. But it still remains the fact that no rights were violated. Okay, wait. So, Mark, I, I want to give you an example, and I really want to know what you think about this. Okay, so Alan and I actually had this conversation, and it's so cool that it's like kind of coming up because I felt like this was pretty significant. So I'm not going to get into the details here because, um, like, because of your employer and stuff. So I'm not going to say that much about it. But I don't it, know where he's going. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, but but it was so. Here, okay. I'll, I'll I'll give you just somewhat of a background because I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best to leave out like a lot of the important stuff. Uh, okay. So Mark, I know. Um. Okay. So how much do you know about the New York State Exchange of Health? Very little. 
Okay, so I'll get into it. Is it, it okay. in New York? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let me get into it. Um, okay. So technically I'm assuming, unless this is not where the conversation is going to go, but I would assume most of us would agree that healthcare is all right. Right. Uh, so with that being said, what happened was over the past year. So the prices for the New York state exchange of health rose exponentially. So I ended up getting a letter in the mail for the company, uh, that I have health insurance with. And so they were like, Oh, Hey, we're increasing the price by like a hundred and something dollars. Listen, at the end of the day for me, I'm like, it kind of is what it is. It just sucks. It's inconvenient convenient, whatever. Right. But I'm like, oh, wait, but like, how is this now going to affect other people? So here's what. Oh, and so this is my argument with Alan. And I was like, oh, yo, fuck this company. I can't believe that they increased it by like this amount of money. And Alan's response was like, oh, no, but he's like, but that's like the law. They all did it. Right. He's like, if you go on, you know, the New York State Exchange of Health, uh, pretty much the government, the New York State government here allowed everybody to do it. So it's not just them. Right. So every single company that's on that exchange, all of your health insurance premiums are going up. And so for me, I'm like, that's even worse because I'm like, wait, so I can't even go for a lower price now. So what you're telling me now is that like, if let's say I wanted to get rid of my health insurance, I'm like, Hey, this is too expensive. I want to go for the competition. There is no competition. They all have the same prices. They all have the same plans. They all have the same deductibles, whatever. Right? So here's then my question. If we were to kind of conceptualize healthcare as a right, how do we then make sense of the fact that not only is there seemingly a trust between these health insurance companies, but on top of that, the government is even kind of colluding with them and saying, Hey, if you yeah. guys want, you can raise all of these prices all together i mean the 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 structure of the healthcare market in this country is, is requires an, an entirely different book and podcast uh, totally because i mean like, like you said you 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 nailed the the issue when you said that the the government is involved with this because right. you know the health insurance market is so heavily regulated and you know, it, regulated when you when a government when a business you know when when it's said that a business is regulated, that means very different things to the consumer than it does to the business, mm -hmm. because the consumer typically thinks that you know a business being regu regulated means that they the consumer are protected from the business taking advantage of them, where the business hears they're regulated and says, "Wow, we're indemnified against consumer complaints because we've got the government backing us up." Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, I often, you know, I've had discussions with businesses, you know, customer service and businesses on the phone and everything where I say, but this isn't fair. And they say we're regulated. And I'm like, that's right. You're supposed to be regulated. And they <laughs> they use it as a defense as no, we're regulated. Right. So in other words, we don't have to answer your complaints. So, I mean, you you, you use the example of the healthcare industry. And I, I see where you're going with that, that, that there's, there's no basically no competition. But that that's the way that market is set up by the government. So it so and you know that would be a case that that someone much more knowledgeable about this than I am would say that the government in that case is hampering the competition. And there's certainly a lot of a lot of economists and lawyers from the classical liberal and libertarian side that would say the 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 there should be much more of a free market in healthcare than there is currently. And you know. You, we could get into the Affordable Care Act and the way it tried to thread that needle between, you know, purely publicly provided health care and a free market in health care by trying to, you know, pursue a, a you know, public health care through the private system. And, and in my opinion, it got the worst of both worlds. Right. So, I mean, some people would argue that the, just a pure public option would be best. Some people argue that the, the free market would be best. They each have their arguments for them, but the Affordable Care Act got the worst of both cases right. instead of the best of both.
right but so that, but that's I, like a whole other discussion for sure yeah well i mean because yeah the difficulty for me there would be so i mean again i take for granted obviously that you don't you're not a follower of the new york state health exchange so the thing is every year they try to raise the prices and i would argue that actually for the most part they've only raised it about maybe i don't know by 40 dollars, give or take 40 to 60 dollars a year and then this year and by the way they try every year so like the company that i'm with they send me a letter every year where they said hey we're going to request we're going to send a request to albany saying that we want this increase so what usually happens is they meet them like one third of the way this is the one time in recent history where they pretty much gave them the entire increase that's never happened before so that i would say is the first thing that i could think of kind of against what you're saying and then the but other again thing, who is they i mean what, you, you say they let oh the oh the government the government well the then government. that's that's wait wait but here's here's the my my case against that uh and i'm going to just use healthcare because like that's the thing that i could think of uh okay so if you were let's say uh, okay so there's the health exchange and then there's the other health cares that are like the more major versions of it because they're like they have better coverage uh higher premiums etc so let's say if i were to go off the exchange and let's say i were to say hey i want to get cigna or Aetna or any of these other companies it's like double the price man and that's the free market for healthcare here Right. That's the free market for healthcare in the context of that there there being a state exchange. Well, I mean, but yeah, but even before the state exchange, I mean healthcare was even worse back then. Yes and no. It, it's complicated. I mean, it's we've never had a free market for healthcare. And I, I understand most people would not want a free market for healthcare. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I certainly can't promise that it would work out better. But the, the 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 and I don't want to sound like some kind of rabid anti-government person, but you know the 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 government has had its hands in the healthcare industry, for better or for worse, mm -hmm. for so long, mm -hmm. and you know we can't you know I mean classical liberals and libertarians can say all they want about how free market healthcare would work, but we are we we it would purely be a thought experiment because. Mm -hmm. It's not just about relaxing this or removing this regulation or anything. It would be a completely different structure of this that, you know, people can predict what would happen, but we have no experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like when when a when a former communist country becomes a free market economy. Think of when the Soviet Union was broke up in 1990 and all of a sudden a free market emerged and a lot of economists and probably I felt the same way at the time thought that, oh, it's going to be this golden age for the free market and all entrepreneurship is going to rise up and consumers are going to be empowered. And of course, all it did is it transferred all this power from the government to the oligarchs. Mm -hmm. And it, it really was not much of a change at all because mm -hmm. they didn't have the institutions they needed to transfer from one type of economy to a completely different type of economy. It's not just like flipping a switch. You have to have a completely different set of institutions in terms of law, in terms of economics, social institutions, you know, having trust in these in these new, you know, powers over your life. It's just, you know, it it's it's the same thing. You know, we have a very, I'm not saying we have a a, a you know a completely government controlled healthcare system, which again many people would favor. Right. But they're, they're, it, it's just so tangled, mm. you know, the, 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 the government influence, the, the private sector, the, the, the competition that's encouraged and discouraged in different ways, the ways that prices and, 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 and uh, uh, are, are regulated. Are all, you know, I, I think also the, the rental market in New York City, where landlords, as far as I understand, have to apply to the rental board of the city to see how much they can raise their rent. Each oh, year. no, 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 no. It's only for rent stabilized apartments, man. 
Okay. Yeah, it's okay. a shit show. It's really yeah, a shit no, show. No, here. no, okay. Yeah. Okay, I, I, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's but you know, in a smaller sense, it's still the same thing. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, you're you what I hear you saying, and again, I apologize if I'm if I'm hearing it wrong, what you're saying is that that the competition in the healthcare industry doesn't exist because all the firms are cooperating more or less, but this is or this is organized and and by the government. And, well, and, part, and yeah. again, I'm not arguing against that, but I'm just saying that's really not what I'm saying because what I'm arguing against is antitrust laws that target purely private collusion between firms. Mm-hmm. And of course, the government coming in and organizing the competition between firms, they would say, that, I mean, the government would say, we're doing this because in our absence, it would be worse. Right, right. In other words, the government would probably, you know, if you appeal to the New York State Board about this and said, oh, my insurance rates went up by $100 a month, they'd say, well, Leon, without us, it would have gone up by $500 a month. That's true. But of course, that's a hypothetical. They can't, you know, how do you prove that? They may be right. No, it is. Yeah. But but how can they prove that? Mm-hmm. You know, and for all we know, I mean, in the most, you know, devious or nefarious story of affairs, you know, there's a lot of regulatory capture. So a lot of people that serve on government boards that oversee and regulate industry are former workers in that industry that still have friends of that industry. Mm-hmm. And economists call this regulatory capture because the, the the institutions of regulation are actually captured by members of the firms that are supposed to be regulated. Right. And this is a sense in which, like I said before, regulation instead of limiting the behavior of companies towards consumers can actually protect companies from the consumers by and enabling companies to tell consumers you know listen you can't complain about this because it's regulated we're allowed to do this right right yeah so then i would ask and because you mentioned the um, the example with uh the shift from communism to i guess some version of capitalism whatever you want to call it but wouldn't what you're arguing for essentially be so big money moving from let's say big business or i'm sorry from or the power rather not money let's uh well money and power i guess go together but you have like you know this kind of uh this section right of moving in from government or moving from government control to big business so because you know i'm sure you've heard these arguments before as you were writing the book because i mean the fundamentally then they would say well mark i mean now business are going to capture all of the wealth and all of the power and essentially they're going to end up working together because it suits them right so how would you argue i guess how would you then argue for the consumer in this system how would the consumer benefit or are you just saying well i'm not saying that they would or wouldn't benefit i'm just saying that they don't really have a right to here that that is what i'm saying the last one and i mean it sounds it sounds harsh right i admit it sounds harsh but you know if 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 we don't look at things in terms of you know business versus consumers where you know business is cast in the black hat and consumers are cast in the white hat and it's the the bad businesses against the good consumers mm-hmm. you know and we consider that they're traders in the marketplace traders with a d not traitors traders mm-hmm. they're participants in the marketplace and you know the marketplace exists ideally speaking to to benefit everybody so you bring your 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 assets, you bring your goods, you bring your money to the marketplace, you trade, you make purchases. Sometimes some parties do better, sometimes some parties do worse. But if everyone makes voluntary transactions, everyone ends up better to some extent, not necessarily equally. But the idea here is that, you know, yes, if, if antitrust laws were relaxed, consumers would be made worse off and businesses would be made better off. 
But what I'm saying is under the antitrust laws now, businesses are illegitimately limited from being as well off as they could be. Mm-hmm. Okay. And consumers get the benefit of this antitrust law limiting the free behavior of business. So naturally, if consumers are better off because of antitrust, they'd be worse off without antitrust. That's right. just math. Right. Okay. But what I'm saying is consumers have no established right to the benefit that they're getting from antitrust law. Hmm. So it's more like just a transfer from business to consumers. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to do that, I mean, do that with a tax and just make it make it apparent that's what you're doing. Right. If you're going to increase the, the corporate tax rate to provide benefits to the individual citizenry, that's that's something we can certainly debate. Mm-hmm. Okay. But why, you know, and some people argue for antitrust on, on redistributionist grounds like this. Right, right. They say it is just another way to take resources or take wealth from, from business and transfer it to the individual consumer or citizen. Right, right, right. Okay. And again, that's that's a policy issue that deserves a separate argument. But I but if that's what you want to do, then then penalizing very particular business behaviors in a way that through a complicated mechanism the market ends up benefiting consumers to the cost of business is not an efficient way to achieve this transfer because it generally lowers the volume of transactions, which fall lowers the generation of wealth. Right, right. See, so, so then um, I guess this is what comes to mind to ask them. Then what sort of maybe either specific policy changes or what what is it that maybe you would either recommend or lo- like to see change in terms of the antitrust laws? Like what would you like to be eased? Wait, and can I also piggyback on that really quickly? Because I think I want to just, I don't want to lose the thread. Is that okay? I, I, it's, it's connected Double, to the yeah, policy. Yeah, it's right. connected to the policy question, right? Because so here's what I would ask Mark, right? And then this actually goes into policy. So I hear you effectively saying something along the lines of like, hey, you know, why don't we, instead of these antitrust laws, essentially enact some sort of tax, right? So in these policies, right? And whatever it is that we're doing, I'm really going to really try hard to connect it to your question. Uh, so in what we're doing, wouldn't it be also, the, or couldn't it be the case that maybe businesses don't really care whether it's antitrust laws or whether it's a tax, meaning that they fight against it either way? Or maybe I'm wrong, or maybe they would prefer a tax and yeah what would the policies be well no i i like that question because you know what i think of is and i i don't want to be too precise with this but what i think of is the way the the scandinavian countries operate like sweden mm-hmm. okay and i'm not claim i mean i i know very general facts about sweden so i'm not i'm not relying but um, i don't know how sweden deals with antitrust so it has nothing to do with this but i'm just talking about you know, it, it's very popular for people on the right to attack Sweden as some, you know, communist country. But, but, but you know, because they have high taxes. Right. But the thing about Sweden, as far as I understand it, is that business in Sweden is has faces much less regulation and much less oversight by the government than it does in the U.S. So in other words, businesses operate in a more of a free market environment in Sweden. Of course, there's environmental regulation and labor regulation and all that. But I mean, as far as the 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 laws that 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 tend more to be money grabs by politicians, limiting, you know, limiting the behavior of businesses to generate money for the politicians or for the government, the, the, the Swedish government does less of this. So in other words, it, it allows the free market to do what the free market does best, which is generate wealth, generate productivity. 
And then once you make, you know, it's this classic economic argument where you make the pie as big as you can, and then you take a nice chunk of it. So yeah, Sweden takes a large amount of wealth in terms of taxes. But before they do that, they allow businesses and consumers to generate generate the most wealth they can. Mm-hmm. And that just that it gets to the, you know, a couple of fundamental theorems of in economics, which is that, you know, the market economy in general, not talking about specific, you know, faults with it, but in general, you know, the operation of the, the market economy and the settle of prices between consumers and, and producers, et cetera, will generate the most wealth. Mm-hmm. And then once that wealth is generated, the government can come and take a chunk of it to fund the necessary operations of government. Right. But it doesn't do any good. And then this comes back to your saying, would businesses be just upset about antitrust or tax? Probably. But in terms of the economy, you could generate a lot more benefits from the economy by letting businesses operate in a greater free market environment. And then once they do better, take more of that as a tax to fund whatever you want to do, including possibly transfer it directly to consumers. (laughs) So that's a whole separate issue. And I I obviously don't address that in my book. (laughs) But this is just, you know, it'd be a, a more efficient way of achieving this transfer if that's what you want to do. Oh, interesting. Well, because in the end, but then my question would be, well, what would the economic benefits be? So for, uh, let's say, a tax as opposed to antitrust? Well, just the fact that that it, if I'm right mm-hmm. and you relax antitrust laws, you, you, you allow businesses to generate more revenue mm-hmm. and then you tax more of that away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even at, at the least, you could you could make up what's lost in consumer well-being through the relaxation of antitrust, you could just take that back through taxation. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you're generating more economic activity means you're generating more wealth. And so there's more pie to draw from in terms of taxes. Oh, man, I know. Oh, man. Okay. So, um, but here's then my thing. And I guess, I don't know if this is necessarily a counterpoint, but like, I mean, you already know this, Mark, obviously from, you know, the perspective of big business, small business, whatever, you know, cause we were just talking about the minimum wage where we had Jeff Fuhrer on. And so like, but the question is always going to be, but isn't it the fact that like, let's say there's a tax increase, isn't that going to make like, let's say the heads of these companies, shareholders, whoever, you know, the board, uh, isn't it going to ultimately make them say something along the lines of like, well, you know, we have this like really big tax, so we don't really want to spend this much money on our employees, et cetera. Etc. You know, because Jeff would say, well, you know, a lot of these companies essentially, when they're kind of stifled economically, obviously, what they end up doing is, I mean, they spend less, and then if you give them like any money, I mean, they kind of just keep it, they hold it themselves, and they, you know, they buy back stocks, right? So how could we prevent that from happening? If that's at all something you would even address? Yeah, I mean, how businesses react to taxes, you know, it depends on how the tax is implemented. Plus, I mean, this is one way in which economic theory predicts a different thing than what happens in the real life. And this is obviously a a problem for economic theory because, you know, the way that supply side economics is supposed to work, this is way outside antitrust, but the way supply side economics is supposed to work is you, you, you know, it's similar to how my antitrust plan works is that you reduce the tax burden on businesses and they're supposed to respond to this by realizing there's, there's increased profit opportunities. So we should invest more, hire more, produce more, and therefore generate more jobs, more products, lower prices, more output, greater national income, greater GDP, 
etc. That's the way it's supposed to work. And in theory, that's great. And, you know, I, I, I supported this idea of how this works. I think supply side economics gets a bad rap from the theoretical angle. But then you read these news reports and assuming they're correct, that when businesses do get these tax breaks, again, like, like you said, Leon, they just pocket the money, they put the money away, they do stock buybacks, they don't increase hiring, they don't increase production, they don't lower prices. You know, so, but but you know, the economist in me hears this and say, why aren't they doing this? They're leaving money on the table. I mean, yes, they could just take the, the, the tax rebate or however it's delivered to them. Mm -hmm. They can just take this and keep it, but that they could do so much more with that. In other words, they could do what businesses do. They could invest that money and make more money from it. Right. And the fact that they don't is incredibly frustrating to me in part because they're they're killing the goose that laid the golden egg listen right. you know this 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 policy is in your favor but you're defeating its purpose by not taking advantage of it so you're not taking advantage of it to make more money now and you're actually defeating its implementation in the future and and reducing your income your income potential in the future right i'm saying how how incredibly short-sighted is this yeah yeah and yeah. this you know and and so i mean i'll i'll you know, what economists predict in terms of rational business behavior does not correspond to what actually happens. Right. And that's something that economists, I mean, and there are economists, of course, that realize this and do work on alternative explanations for this. But I mean, this is the basic economic theory that we teach students in, in, in college. But, you know, and this is why many college students are dissatisfied with the way economics is taught, because it just doesn't correspond to what we're seeing in the real world. Right. And I'm curious, Mark, do you know Ryan Stelzer? The name sounds familiar. Oh, okay. So, uh, okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, well, he, he's, um, so he's kind of more of a business person, but he's also like a business philosopher where he would do like different talks or whatnot for companies, whatever. Consulting, uh, yeah. Yeah, consult yeah, yeah. Create, yeah. 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 So, oh uh, yeah. So with Ryan, we had him on the show now. I mean, we've had him on several times, but we had him on a couple of years ago. And so his argument was this, and I'm sure you would agree with it, but I wonder what your thoughts are. So he said, yeah, you know, the main problem with business businesses, I mean, obviously there are many, but like, he's like, this is like the fundamental one. He said, CEOs like have a cap of about five years so when they come into these companies they kind of know they're like okay i have five years to make as much money as i possibly can and then i'm out of here so he says on fun on, you know fundamentally when you think of long term and short term i mean unfortunately there really is no long term so when we yeah. argued uh well i we i can't say we argued but when you know my question to ryan was like well you know i don't get it like why are ceos so greedy right and so ryan says well because they're incentivized to kind of be right he's like we have this system where there's such a high turnover rate, whatever high you know it's not like every couple months but like uh he says there's such a high turnover rate of CEOs that essentially they know like I'm not I have a short uh, shelf life here so of course I'm going to try to get as much money as possible so I guess I would wonder what are your thoughts then right because you're then saying hey you know um the, the way the ideally right the way the system is that it's supposed to be structured is that this company is supposed to grow and continuously grow when like let's say the people at the top of it I mean they don't even they don't think about it that way because I mean at the end of the day they're going to be out sooner than later so then how would we make something like that work if it's something that's on your mind I mean uh, yeah well I mean there's a board of directors that yep. you know uh will just you know elect another ceo when it's right. time to switch that one out and right. i mean ideally they're probably gonna um think about the future of the company and its longevity and make this but he said but, that it, that doesn't happen that's kind that, of the thing no, the, yeah. the particular that particular ceo yeah. of course is incentive no that argument remains the same i'm just saying there are people who think of right longevity. yeah i mean there's basically the, the, the problem is the difference in time frames Mm -hmm. I mean, this is basically what you're what I hear you saying, Leon. I agree with it completely. 
you have you have top executives that that are not that are you know, don't plan on staying with the company very long but they're given stock options so obviously they want to do whatever they can in that short period of time including perhaps corrupt activities you know which many you know many CEOs are brought down you know for to to try to increase their chunk of the pie while they have it and then you have the board of directors, which may be a little longer, you know, they're a little longer, or at least overlap with different CEOs that take more of a long range view that try to represent the stockholders. And the stockholders may be financial funds that are going to be in exist in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And they, they try to invest things for pension funds and individual investors that are usually in it for the long haul. So you have the the owner's interests don't correspond with the leader's interests, right. even with, and Alan made a great point, the board of directors trying to, to bridge that. So the board of directors, I assume, with their acting rationally, would try to find a CEO that, they, that signals to them that they're more interested in the long term. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, these CEO candidates know that if they do a bad job, they're out on their butt. So, you know, it's not like the board can commit to keeping them around for a long time. Right. True. So it's, you know, I look at it in just these different, you know, uh, viewpoints in terms of time, right. you know, short term, long term, medium term. That's that's basically it. Right. Right. And the fact and the, the, how how you have to kind of structure incentives, you know, how, you know, we thought when stock and when stock options were first granted to CEOs, which actually wasn't that long ago, I don't think mm -hmm. it was thought as this masterpiece of, of incentivizing. Because how do you get the CEO to care about the performance of the company? Well, you vest that CEO with stock options, mm -hmm. either stocks or stock options, same thing. And so when the when the CEO helps the company do better, and of course that's just one person, you know, but you know, through the leadership, through the, the 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 guidance, whatever they provide. And again, this is taking a very you know general idealist view of of business. But if the CEO generates a lot of wealth for the company, the CEO will be rewarded for that. And if the CEO doesn't, then the CEO is going to lose in terms of their stock options becoming less valuable. Mm -hmm. Okay. But, you know, that gave, that just gave incentive for unethical CEOs to do whatever they could do to increase the wealth of the company, whether that was legal or not. Right. So they, then, you, then you got into corrupt behavior that brings down companies like Enron and and so so on right. so and the, you know the the incentive you know that that stock incentive idea was great assuming that the ceos were going to only exhibit legal ethical behavior and assuming that they would be there long enough to actually have the long-term health of the company in mind right but neither of those are guaranteed unfortunately yeah by the way, this is something, this is not one of my canned questions <laughs> that we discussed, you know, before the podcast, but this is just very interesting to me. Uh, what exactly uh, drove your interest into like to writing about this? Because, and I know that's usually a cliche question that people oh, ask no. on a podcast, but is it that you started, you were trying to start a business or, you know, someone who started a business and then something like that, or it's a niche topic. No, I just I could never understand. I mean, I understood the 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 received theory, which I you know present in the book before my critiques. Right. But I just said this, you know, I I, I remember I I you know we had a little like you know sometimes in in college departments you have a, like a brown bag seminar where you all you all bring your lunch 
and you meet in a little meeting room and one of you gives a talk on their current research and the rest uh -huh. of you just comments on it. It's like a, an academic presentation, but it's among friends. Okay. And even if they're harsh, you know, they meant well. Right. <laughs> but um, I, I remember having some kind of meeting like this and I just, we're talking about antitrust. And of course, all my, all my colleagues, very smart, very knowledgeable economists were like, you know, this is crazy. This is nuts. And I was like, but what are these companies doing wrong? I mean, aside from breaking the law, which that again, that's begging the question because the law has to presume something wrong. So I'm like, what are they doing wrong? Well, they're hurting consumers. Yeah, but you know, and that's that's bad, obviously, but people get hurt all the time in different contexts. What are they doing wrong that that hurts consumers? You know, because again, they, they use the same example. One company can raise their price or shut down a business or stop a product line or whatever, and it hurts consumers, but it's it doesn't have any impact on antitrust. Oh, wait, Mark, can I ask you a question then? Okay. So, Because uh, I wonder if this was presented, like when you were having these conversations. I mean, this just came to mind. Listen, it's going to be a super basic question, but I'm sure somebody said it to you. That's why I want to know what your thoughts okay. are. But I'm sure somebody said to you, okay, in a, like an ideal libertarian economy, right? So the value of a product, like ideally, is supposed to match its prices. So what the companies are doing wrong by price fixing is that the value that they're providing is constantly fluctuating, right? So it's like they're agreeing to lower it because it benefits them, and then they raise it up again because it benefits if it's them, meaning the value of the product doesn't ideally, obviously, match the actual product itself. So what would you say? I'm sure somebody said that well, to you somewhere. Well, price price is going to equal the value to the marginal consumer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In other words, if, if 100 consumers buy a product at a certain price, mm -hmm. you've got to assume that all of those consumers, except maybe one, value it at higher than that price. Right. When you, when you buy something at a certain price, you buy it because that product is worth more to you than the money you're paying for it. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Or at least just as much as the money yeah. you're paying for it. Right. Right. Okay. You know, you're not going to buy something rationally that is worth less than the money you're paying for it. Right. Okay. So if, if you know, let's say you have a hundred consumers buying a product for $10. Yep. You can assume that most of those consumers value that product as more than $10. It's probably just the last one, the one that was really on the line about buying it that said, okay, I'll buy it because it's worth $10 to me. Right. Right. Okay, so the value of the product is equal to the price for that last consumer, but not for all consumers. Right. And so if they raise the price, you lose a few consumers that were, you know, close to the line about it. You know, if you raise the price to $12, you lose all the consumers that were willing to pay 10, but not 12. But you've still got all the consumers that valued the item at, at least $12. Right. So the, the price still reflects the value of the marginal consumer as just a different marginal consumer now. Gotcha. Yeah. So for me, that makes a lot of sense. I would say for probably the vast majority of products, but like, yeah, where something would like this would come up against, you know, what I would think of as a basic, right. Is what we're necessity. thinking about. Yeah. Necessity. Right. Yeah. So when we're thinking about food, healthcare, et cetera, because like for me, again, listen, I don't care that much. I understand, you know, I make a considerable living. So it kind of is what it is, but I got to tell you, man, when I saw that like price of my uh, health premium go up, man, I was like, yo, do I really need healthcare? Like, is there a part of me that's like, Hey, maybe you're just doing this because you're anxious. I mean, I, I still have health. But my point is to say, like, yeah, what do we do then, right? When it's actually a necessity. So, yes, if we're talking about, I don't know, coffee or whatever else, fine. You know, I agree with you 100%. Wait, wait, but... wait, 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 wait. What? Oh, you're I know, I know, I know. You're questioning the right to coffee? <laughs> this is, this, you know, oh my gosh. Yeah, man. So, like, how do we then draw the line between, I guess, what are just like goods and what are necessities? What would that look like? Well, no, that's a great question. And obviously, if you're talking about something like, you know, 
like healthcare or even gasoline. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, I, the, the internet even. But yeah, the internet, putting aside all the issues with the, the diesel economy and everything. But I mean, you know, basic, tran- you know, food, shelter, transportation, communications and everything. Yep. Again, if you're going to consider these things a right that deserves to be protected, and again, that's a whole other philosophical argument. But let, let's say for the sake of argument that you do want to protect these rights, then you do so directly. Mm. And not through, well, we have some companies providing this, so we're going to manage their behavior a little bit, hoping that that the, the, the harm to consumers is minimized. Right. I mean, if you want to provide a right to food, you do something like the SNAP program. Not right. that that's perfect, but, you know, yeah. instead of instead of interfering with the behavior of the thousands and thousands of companies that manufacture food you just you know provide financing that's also that's also a popular suggestion for for healthcare is providing vouchers yeah. for healthcare let let you know the, the you know take more of the government regulation out of the health provider and health insurance industry let that run more like a free market but give consumers the 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 resources to purchase their own healthcare and then you know, hopefully hopefully you know, rationally, this will lead to greater transparency among healthcare providers on what the cost of this care actually is. Right, right. Because they'll bill ten thousand dollars for something, but then they'll, they'll accept a hundred, and they may still make a profit. And all the the hidden charges, hidden fees, some of which are based on regulations, some aren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's a whole other topic too. Mm-hmm. But again, we're getting back into an industry that's you know got heavy government involvement in it already, for better or for worse. Right, right. Yeah. So why? Okay. First of all, I love that. Obviously, I mean, as somebody who supports a ton of government intervention, but I think like the issue that this is what I would say economists would have to grapple with is that, dude, people fucking sell water for like twenty dollars a bottle, you know. So it's like, how do we then say? And you know, and I'm sure you know this, Mark. I mean, when when Obamacare was uh, first coming up and there was a public option, I mean, the healthcare industry fought vehemently against it. They're like, we don't want a public option, right? So I guess is there a world where the two can coexist? Where okay, these health insurance companies, we could just tell them like, look, fuck off man if they don't want to buy your company or your plan or whatever they don't have to do that right and then we could have this public option for the people who need it whatever that would look like you know but essentially saying that like yes these two can coexist because i mean listen i hear what you're saying with government intervention but we also have to account for the fact that again there are people literally selling water for like 20 dollars, meaning that you if you can co-opt the resource if you can just take it and say hey i'm gonna make money off of it they're gonna want to do that and they're gonna want to eliminate any sort of barriers or especially competition but specifically like they would want to eliminate any barriers to doing that because their whole thing is like, well, if I gather this resource, if I can make it mine, then I can do with it whatever I want. Right. Well, we just have to to eliminate or minimize the opportunities for doing that. Hmm. You know, and there's there's a, a you know the whole opposition on the side of classical liberals and libertarians to occupational licensing is basically just you know protecting or, or, or turning you know occupations into guilds where it limits the number of people in them and allows them again to have control over that limited resource and it can be the the the, the you know things like you know obviously one one uh, well-known case is hair braiding where they make people who who braid hair get cosmetology licenses mm-hmm. and this is obviously to protect cosmetologists but it certainly doesn't protect consumers who want to get their hair braided and don't want to have to find a licensed cosmetologist to braid their hair when many people can braid hair without a cosmetology license. Right. 
So, and you know, and, you know, a lot of arguments from the more libertarian side argue that a lot of limitations on resources and a lot of a lot of hoarding of resources that generates excess profit is generated by governmental limitations. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, you know, in what I what I you know, kind of the one of the broader points of my book is that I come at it through a different angle, but really is you know, we want to promote competition, but competition as a process. Right. You know, one of the arguments you, you you gave the the typical story of predatory pricing, you know, where, you know, a, a large firm uh, sees a small firm try to get part of its market. So the large firm with a lot of resources, a lot of financing drops its price below what the small firm can endure. Mm. Small firm gets driven out of business. Large firm does this and then raises their price again. The, the problem with that story is it's not just one and done. Because as soon as they raise their price, there's there's opportunity for another entrant to come in and try to compete again. Right. True. Okay. So then the large firm is going to have to lower their price again. So right. over the long term, you may see this large firm usually having a low price with occasional spikes in the middle that attract more competitors in. Right. And this gets back to just the general point that economists uh, always make in our intro classes is that entrepreneurs respond to opportunity as soon as they're as soon as someone as soon as one business starts to take advantage of consumers in some way other businesses will come in and compete better mm -hmm. if there's an opportunity for them to do so yeah so i mean because yeah with something like let's say the internet i mean again i'm going to just use new york city here because i mean this is sort of what we know uh but like yeah with the internet man we've had i think two to three providers here man for decades so it's like i hear what you're saying but i wonder like is this applicable to all industries most industries how many industries because again like here we have optimum we have verizon fios and i think spectrum and that's like it that's as far as it goes and it's always been that and by the way the prices for the internet here are absurd so in the past probably i think five years it's went up i think maybe 30 to 40 percent and there is no competition so i mean it's technically not a trust just to be clear right i mean i'm not right. i'm not accusing them of anything but what i am saying is that there are not three there's less competition than you would like right right right, right. right. and then and higher prices and higher profit yeah and they're all the same by the way all of the prices are the same so if you were like hey i want to get verizon instead of optimum i mean you're paying pretty much the same thing what? not the same what is it? Optimum is cheaper than Verizon. Get the hell out. How much is Verizon? <laughs> no, seriously. Hey, this podcast is now about <laughs> yeah, uh, Verizon. Uh, Verizon, if you're getting like a, a gig of internet, I believe it's like about a hundred bucks. If you're getting uh, Optimum a gig, it's like uh, half of that. Is it? Like I that. pay 116 a month for my internet, man. I don't know. Yeah, we, we should discuss this after the podcast. No, wait, this is actually good. <laughs> is, I mean, it's good, but we're talking about specific prices. But that's what, no, but that's kind of, but that's literally what so I'm I'll saying. tell you this, just generally speaking, yeah. Optimum is cheaper than Verizon. How much Verizon is a higher quality and oh. that's how they... Oh, a brand is that themselves. okay yeah. but i mean i can't imagine that it's much cheaper okay so but fine let's say it's cheaper it's not exactly the same right but okay but then what do we do in these industries where there isn't let's say much competition fine maybe it's not this one exactly even though i still think it is but let's say <laughs> if there are other industries right so not a trust exactly but again we still have these same options over and over and there well, you, are you get that you get that with any industry that relies on a, a network Mm -hmm. you know, it used to be the phone companies. Now it's yeah. internet companies. You know, you, right. you can't yeah. literally have thousands of, of small internet companies right. when, when all the, the cables and, and lines have to be owned. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, we try to deregulate the electricity industry and have, you know, decouple the provision from the supply. And it, it, I don't think it worked that well, but again, I'm not an expert on that, mm -hmm. but yeah, you have some cases where, 
you know, I mean, economists talk about the ideal of perfect competition when there's many, many, many small firms all, all you know, providing an identical product at the same price and not making much of a profit. And then you have some industries that just because of the nature of the business itself, it can't support that many firms. Mm -hmm. So when you have something like utility provision, phone companies, internet companies, et cetera, you know, the, the, the physical infrastructure and the, the nature of the network is such that a market, even a large market like New York City, can only support a handful of firms. Mm. And if there's only a handful of firms, there's not going to be that much competition and prices are going to be higher. Mm-hmm. If prices are higher, consumers are, are worse off. Okay. Now, you know, the, there's there's several options for that. But again, they're all in the area of regulation and policy and not antitrust. And, you know, you're not making al- any allegation of antitrust violations. Right, right. You know, because, you know, I mean, they, they could be cooperating. Yeah, we don't know. The unconscious parallelism where right, if right. they were charging the same price, it's all kind of a wink, wink. Right, right. We don't you know. know. Backroom deals or, you know. Um, but that's that's sort of the, the 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 classic problem in the economics of a natural monopoly. You know, utility companies are always considered to be a natural monopoly because it's just not it doesn't make any sense to have competition in a market where there has to be a shared infrastructure. Right. Like, so usually in a, in a town or a city, you have one water company, one electric company, one gas company, used to be one phone company. Okay. But then you have the government regulate these companies so they don't take advantage of their monopoly position. Right. Now, you can say that's the same thing as antitrust. That's what I was thinking. Okay. In 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 one sense, it is. Okay. But these also, and I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but these also tend to be necessary goods, right? Mm. You know, water, electricity, communications, et cetera. Yep. Okay. So the gov- there's certainly an argument for the government to intervene to, to limit the profiteering of companies that are providing something that they consider of, of essential use to the, to the people. And this is really a compromise, you know, because the government could say, well, we'll just provide it ourselves. But we're the government. We're not business people. We don't know how to run a business efficiently. So we're going to grant one company the license to do this. But we're going to regulate the prices you charge. And we're going to charge you a licensing fee to do this. So you can make money and we can provide the service to our people at lower cost. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then again, real world and politics and individuals get involved where the regulators may be in the pocket of the people being regulated. And... You know, when the, when this license comes up for renewal, they, they they may just roll over the contract instead of really inviting competition. And competition may be hard because there's these existing infrastructure and all these details get involved. Right, right. Where, you know, it, you know, ideally this may be run better, but in the real world, this may be the best we can do. Right, right. Given right. other priorities and other concerns in, in society. Yeah. So, I mean, you got me, man. You convinced me. So I, what I'm hearing you say, minus the necessities, I mean, we should kind of just leave businesses alone, right? Yeah. And then yeah, necessities, there's an argument for government to get involved. But again, right. not not just leave businesses alone, because I want to make clear that businesses have to operate within, you know, even if we put antitrust law aside, all the laws against fraud and deceit right, right, right. and violence and mistreatment and harmful products and all of that, which exists to protect valid established rights on the parts of consumers and other competitors. Right, right, right. But 
back to my original point, antitrust laws don't protect any valid recognized rights. Right. Mm-hmm. They protect yes. well-being, they protect interests. And that's why, you know, earlier in the book, I tie this to basically utilitarianism versus the rights approach that I take. Oh, can you can you get into that? Yeah, let's talk philosophy. Well, just that, you know, uh, I don't know how far to back up here, but, you know, util- antitrust is generally justified mm-hmm. as, you know, in terms of utilitarianism. You know, the fact that, you know, um, the way the economic theory works out, the the good to everybody, business and 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 consumers or producers and, and buyers is maximized at that efficient market price, at that perfectly competitive price. Mm-hmm. So you get the most output, lowest price, greatest amount of consumer well-being, and still some profit left for business. Mm-hmm. As soon as businesses get some power over price and they, they start colluding or fixing prices or merging, whatever, and that price starts to rise, output falls, price rises, business profit goes up, but not as much as consumer well-being goes down. Mm-hmm. So you have a shift of wealth from consumers to business. But it's not just a clean shift, some is lost. And that mm-hmm. loss is called deadweight loss mm-hmm. because that's just lost, lost well-being because the efficient level of output was not produced. Mm-hmm. So the argument is we need antitrust to try to push industry in the direction of this perfectly competitive ideal in order not just to generate the most well-being for consumers, but to generate the most well-being overall for the economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's it's they don't even say it's unfortunate, but it's unfortunate that, you know, to increase the well-being of consumers, you have to take it away from business. But in terms of the cost benefit comparison, you generate a lot more extra well-being for consumers than the amount you take from business. Mm -hmm. But surprisingly, you never hear anybody say, well, we should tax consumers to make up the loss to business. (laughs) Yeah. You know, for some reason, you never hear that. Right. Okay. But, you know, that's that's the utilitarian justification for antitrust. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's why usually most antitrust supporters uh, ac- and across the political spectrum, with exceptions, would say that it doesn't matter whether you focus on consumer well-being or whether you focus on overall economic well-being, because they're really coupled. Mm-hmm. Okay. You in by you increase consumer well-being by increasing economic well-being in total. Okay. And there's a lot of academic discussions about whether antitrust should focus on consumers or overall economic well-being, but it's all beside the point as mm-hmm. far as I'm talking about, because it leads to the same conclusion. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what I say is that a lot, you know, with, with many utilitarian arguments, something is lost. Mm-hmm. And what is lost is any discussion of rights, any discussion of dignity, any discussion of justice. Mm-hmm. So, in you know, antitrust is typically not one of the utilitarian nightmare scenarios, but it it you know, in in terms of business, it could be considered one. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you know, all this is done, even at the expense of business, because you know, it, it's in and, and the thing is. It's very, very, very rarely any notion of rights are involved. 
except for every once in a while you'll have you know like like in the in the quotes leon read in the beginning from court decisions and politician statements etc that you know there's a, a right to competition a right to free enterprise etc mm -hmm. but the right what what does the right to competition mean if not the right to run your business the way you want to given that you respect others rights mm -hmm. so in other words there when they say right to competition they mean a right to their version of competition which leads to this economically efficient state of affairs oh interesting that's not the way i read it i wonder okay i'll just tell you my interpretation and i wonder what you think so when i hear something like you know the right to competition what i hear that meaning is the right to actually continue to competing meaning that if these companies kind of like push you out because of obviously price fixing then obviously you now no longer are able to compete so the way i understand that is that is that you have the right to maintain a degree of competition with your competition as opposed to just or only being able to compete well how, how would you interpret that Don? well that, that sounds more like a right to exist you know i mean yeah you know, horribly run companies shouldn't exist. Right. You know, so, I mean, they don't have a right to exist just because they want to be a company. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be a successful company. You right. have to run at some level of efficiency or competence right. in order to continue as a company. And if you can't do that, you should be replaced by a company that can, or right. your company should be bought by somebody who can run it better. Right. Yeah. So what, what, I, I think, you know, to, to kind of nudge that back to what I think they actually mean by right to compete is they mean that small businesses that may not be as efficient as big businesses mm -hmm. should still be able to compete, assuming that biz, big, big businesses don't take advantage of their bigness right? with predatory pricing or things like that. Right. Okay. So, uh, uh, but but that's still you know, promoting a certain picture of competition. You know, this is also the, the reason in the book where I get into what fairness means, because it'll often also be an, an appeal to fair competition or fair commerce or fair business. Mm -hmm. But fair isn't a word that, that moral philosophers use a lot because it's very vague. Mm -hmm. You know, fairness is usually, you know, more properly termed in terms of justice. Mm -hmm. you know, so we think of, you know, just treatment or, 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 or you know, uh, just institutions, they're fair ones. Mm -hmm. You know, racial justice is being fair to everybody, regardless of, of race or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Okay, gender justice is being fair to everyone, regardless of justice, etc. You guys know this. Right, right. And, 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 but what do antitrust advocates mean when they talk about fairness in business? Again, what I argue in the book is they have a very particular idea of fairness that is geared to what they want to come out of the process, mm -hmm. which is low prices and high consumer well-being. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I, I, I use examples from like sports and games to explain how, you know, we consider fair play in sports, but that isn't just a given what fair means fair is is a rule applied to to generate a certain outcome mm -hmm. okay uh i use i you know I, like like most other people i watched the super bowl yeah and i i remember i can't remember who it was or even what quarter it was but there was a great example of uh i think it was a, a big big throw into the end zone and the receiver was jumping up to get it and the defender was also jumping up trying to catch it, but they're both looking at the ball. Yeah. Okay. So it wouldn't have been pass interference. Right. Okay. 
And you know that's because obviously if 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 the receiver's jumping up to get the ball, it'd be very easy for the defender just to plow into him. Right. Okay. But if you just if you require that the defender can also jump up and try to catch the ball, or even knock it away, but not knock the receiver out of the way, then that's a fair way to try to prevent the the reception. Right. Okay. That's a great rule. I love that rule. It, it, it results in more clean play. But why do we want clean play? It's not just an obvious moral fact that we want clean play. We want that because we think it results in the best game. Mm-hmm. In the best, you know, if, if the receiver can catch that ball, assuming they're not hit, we want them to catch that ball. Mm-hmm. Okay, but if the defender can catch it instead, we want that to happen too. Right. Because that 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 results in the be, in the the most exciting competition where it's not just brutal, just knocking the receiver out of the way. Right, right. Okay, that results in the most enjoyable game. That results in the most profitable game. So that version of fairness is 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 devised towards a certain end. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about fair competition, they're using the word fair like it's an obvious moral concept. But their version of fair competition is geared towards a certain end, which again is this perfect competition ideal of low prices and higher consumer well high consumer well being. Right, right, right. By the way, Mark, did you know that there's actually kind of a version of antitrust in the NFL? In terms of what? Okay, so there's a trade deadline. So the understanding here, and this is like my crude version of it. So there's you can only trade up until week seven. The reason why they do that is past week seven, you kind of already know who the playoff teams are going to be. So what they don't want to happen is they don't want, like, let's say the week before the playoffs, right? Some team trading away a player for, I mean, it could even be a good, like, let's say it could be a fair trade or whatever. But what they don't want is they don't want it to kind of be a, a quid pro quo, right? Where like, let's say, oh, now that you're about to go into the playoffs, I'm going to give you this good player meaning next time this happens i expect you to kind of do the same thing so yeah they set it up where after week seven there are no more trades so it's like if let's say you're running back whoever goes down if you can't find somebody out there on the market you are not getting anybody from another team yeah well that's what i'm saying i, w- I wouldn't call that necessarily antitrust but that's just part of the the whole institution of rules mm-hmm. to try to keep the, the 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 league somewhat balanced right and 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 the results somewhat unpredictable uh-huh and and again, that's a version of fairness, but it's a version of fairness with a certain with a certain end in view. That's yeah. like the whole draft thing, where the worst team gets the first pick in draft. Yeah. That's so you hopefully, if the league gets off balance in terms of talent, that that draft mechanism at least restores a tiny bit of balance. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, but again, all these aren't these things aren't guided by some higher notion of morality. These are to keep the play exciting and keep everyone invested in their teams and and generate profit for the league, which is great. That's not a right. cynical statement. Right, right. But you know, football is a business like any other sport. Yeah. But they keep in business by keeping things exciting for the fans, and that's right. that's the ideal, right? They have to provide a product which satisfies the fans, and you know they they do that. Right. And to, so- to some extent, I'm not saying the NFL is perfect by by any means, but I'm saying, you know, when people say, oh, this is just big business. Yeah, it is big business, but it's but a successful private business is contingent on keeping its customers satisfied. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, you- and, and, and these rules, to the extent that they that they serve this purpose, do that. Yeah, because I mean, my I guess I don't know if it's a counterpoint, but whatever uh, my. um 
a complimentary point would be something along the lines of like, but wouldn't we say that that's kind of applicable to businesses too? Because essentially fine, if let's say we take away consumer rights or whatever, can't we just say, well, it's in the interest of fairness that if we do have antitrust laws, there would be more competition. And like, yeah, even though businesses suffer, I mean, at least there are more of them out there. And in some ways it's like, you know, let's say the NFL consumer or whatever. Uh, it's sort of like keeping consumers happy, whatever, you know, if you want to kind of quantify it that way, or at the very least, it's sort of keeping things fair. It's sort of keeping, uh, well, it's keeping those are two different things though you're, you're, you're i hear you conflating these two different things because you're saying you know we're doing this to make consumers happy yes right. that's the purpose of the standard justification of antitrust right and that's how they're defining fairness but yeah. i'm saying where's where's you know aside from the utilitarian justification where's the respect for rights in there right why right. why why is it valid for them to to you know maximize the well-being of consumers or the economy as a whole by by restricting the rightful exercise of property rights on the part of business owners. Well, here's my okay, going back to the NFL, because I think it's such a good example. So then I guess, Mark, I'm just really curious now about your opinion. So what would you say if an owner of the NFL would say, well, but who cares if I'm going into the playoffs, right? Why shouldn't I be able to trade for a player like the week before the wild card game? I don't even understand why that's a problem. If that team wants to give me that player and I'm giving them some compensation for it, why isn't that allowed? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really understand how that rule works. So, I mean, that's not, not your fault. I just, I'm not seeing. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So yeah. So the understand, I'll just, I'll try my best to explain it to you. Yeah. So the understanding here is that like, they don't want teams in the playoffs that have like super teams. So it's like, if you develop you that even better, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it makes them even better. And the understanding oh, okay. is there might be some behind the scenes like stuff going on. So here's what I mean, right? So if you put together a super team in the offseason, listen, you are allowed to do that because at the end of the day, you can sign as many people for whatever money you have, right? But then once it comes playoff time, the understanding is like, wait, why would this team at this point want to give up this good player? And it's like, well, because they don't need him. And it's like, oh, so they don't need him now because- Oh, they okay. So let, okay. Okay. Yeah. So let me see if I can- yeah. So in other words, you've, you've got teams that are certain to go to the playoffs. Yes. That are not going to play. Yes, so those yes. teams may have really good players that they want. Okay, yeah. So it's funny because I because I just watch Moneyball. Yes, there this in terms I, of my, I don't know if it works in the same way in baseball, mm -hmm. but just all the constant trading of, of players. Yes, yes, no yes, yes. I'm not a baseball fan. Yeah, yeah. But so it's the same thing. Constant trading of players and just just trying to to like I I know people who do fantasy football and, and those kind of things and they're constantly tinkering with their lineup and trying to see if they can make a beneficial trade. Right. But I okay, I see where you're going coming from here. Right, right. Yeah. So like that's why they made it week seven because by week seven, I mean you kind of get a sense of who's going right. to the players, but it's not right. certain. Meaning that's or at least can who just can go and who can. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like at that point, it's like why would this really shitty team week sixteen or week seventeen trade this great player to this other team? Even yeah, let's say the compensation is fair. Yeah, because there yeah. you go. And it's, it's the understanding is fine, even if the compensation is quote unquote fair. What is it that they're expecting from the other team? I mean, you can't really know what conversations these GMs are having with each other. So that's right. why they're they're thinking. Is it's like no by week seven if you can't get that player sorry you're probably, you're gonna have to go with your team so that's what i was thinking from your perspective you know because if that's what we're doing in terms of fairness you know it's not necessarily a right or whatever right can't we yeah. apply that to the market too and say well i mean we could do something along the lines in terms of antitrust law as well but i i would actually think that allowing those trades you know in terms of what i was saying before about making the game more exciting and more pleasurable for fans yeah i mean assuming that most people are going to be watching the playoffs, whether they're fans of those teams or not, they're going to yeah. want to see those teams be the best teams they can. And that would include 
even poaching good teams, good players from, you know, teams that chances have gone. Right. So I, I don't know where that really, I mean, I, I get, I get what they're doing, but I don't really get why that's in their interest. Right. I mean, that that almost seems like a more noble purpose contrary to their interests. I think they're afraid of collusion because the idea, again, is like, let's say you get this player this year and then maybe in two years or whatever it is, when I want a good player, oh, I'm going to call you up and I'm going to be like, you give me that player now. So I guess but they can do that anyway before the seventh week. Well, but yeah, but the point is before the seventh week, it seems or at least it feels fair just because like you don't really know who's going to be in the playoffs. And so here's really the understanding, right? So the understanding is you probably wouldn't have traded for this player if you didn't know that you were going into the playoffs so it's like if it were week seven yeah you would have been like ah maybe i'll need him maybe i won't right so but then after the fact you're like oh no i really want this player now because now we've got a shot yeah 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 Yeah. so they don't want it to turn into a thing where it becomes kind of like a backdoor business agreement where it's like okay i'm gonna give you this guy this and by the way fantasy football fyi it wouldn't have to be backdoor if they allowed it that's yeah yeah Huh. So, but yeah, it's the same it's very thing. Very interesting, though. But yeah, you know, it, it sounds like they're they're imposing this rule for some more ethical notion of fairness, right? Even though it doesn't really have any impact on the 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 performance of the league as a as a business. Yeah, yeah. Which makes me wonder why, because you know the NFL, the NFL, and establishing its rules, you, you would presume has their profit in mind, right? Yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, I think the understanding here is that, like, if there is some sort of relationship, again, backdoor deal, the other teams in the playoffs would be like, oh, what the fuck? Like, I don't have that relationship with that person. Why are you trading him that player? It's sort of like, you know, when you're like a kid, you're like, why are you giving him your toy for that toy when I could have fucking had that toy or I could have given you something better? And you're like, oh, well, I already have this backdoor deal with this other person. Or it's the NFL being pissed at a few owners maybe yeah. taking advantage of this. Yeah, and, I'm you sure. Know, I mean, these these are human beings at the end, and you know, I mean, we whenever we look at an institution at the like this, whether it's the NFL or the government or anything else, we like to assume that everyone's rational actors. But mm-hmm. you know, there's just people they get pissed or have grudges or resentment or you know, yeah. I mean, lots of examples of leagues and owners being at at, at in in opposition. So right, right, right. Yeah, and I think also, yeah, going back to that, I think there's a lot of jealousy too. So for the teams who are in the playoffs, they, they're they like, hey, it's not fair because I didn't have that relationship with this person and I right. wouldn't have given up that for that person. Why right. are you doing that? You know, so they're like, I, that's not fair. So whatever. I, I think, I, I guess it always comes down to like what a person conceives of as being fair. But yeah, I mean, honestly, exactly. you could, that's, you that's, could, that's what I'm coming yeah. down to is fairness is so, it means different things to yeah. different people. And then that, all those meanings may be perfectly valid, because fair is such a vague term that it can fit all these things. Right. But that's but but when somebody uses, you know, I, I never make an argument and I, I never use the term fairness in an argument. Right. So it's almost kind of like, a, a you know, at least as a philosopher thinks that with fair being a vague term. I mean, if if you and I were arguing about something and you know that we had the same sense of fairness, we could use it. Right. True. But if I use fair in an argument without knowing if the other person uses fair in the same way. Then, then that just we need to use more precise shared terms. Right, right. You know. Yeah, and I guess with the NFL, I mean that's how they came to Week Seven because I figured like you yeah. know a bunch of yeah, that yeah, bunch of, that, yeah that and means. they were like, hey, whatever, fuck it. I guess we can settle on Week Seven. I'm sure some owners were like, no, after like Week Three, we don't want any trades. But yeah, I'm sure like Week Seven was like, okay, fine, that's like doable. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I feel like that's what like we kind of came to here today. It's like we're saying, okay, antitrust laws aren't exactly all across the board good, but like we can argue that at least with the necessities, those should be heavily government regulated. And yeah, man, I could get on board with that. I really love that. Yeah, actually, in regards to easing antitrust laws, are you aware of any oh. um, advocates in, in uh, politics who are sort of working on that and, and maybe have any traction or momentum? No. Well, okay. No. All right. I mean, I, 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 I know people that I think would like to do this, but yeah, it most most people in the antitrust field are trying to push for incremental change one way or the other. Right. Okay. You know, where you That's have good. people trying to push for, you know, uh, you know, harsher or, or stricter or more forceful enforcement of you know, you can either oh, okay. take the existing antitrust laws as they are now and just put more resources into enforcing them. Right. You know. Or and you can take the existing antitrust laws and put less resources into enforcing them, and by that by that mechanism weaken them. Right. I mean, traditionally, Democratic administrations have put more resources behind antitrust. Republican administrations have put less. Yeah. Or, or you can actually change the laws themselves, the the laws that are that are you know passed. Right. Right. And you know. And you know, recently there was a revision of the merger guidelines. You know how how the how the FTC is going to pursue mergers, when, why, in what cases, and you know, so the different sides will try to to push the guidelines in their preferred direction. Mm-hmm. You know, but other than a few academics, I don't know anyone that's that's you know because it's it's ridiculous to to, to if yeah, if I actually tried to to politically move to eliminate. The antitrust divisions of the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, no one's saying that, you know. So, but, but, you know, obviously, if if I wanted to to lessen antitrust enforcement, I'd work politically to try to reduce the resources given to these bodies. Right, right, right. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, man. Wow, super interesting. Just getting back to what your question was. I I, I try to keep this in my mind that you know what would I advocate be done. It wasn't that the question before oh, you yeah, got that, derailed yeah, that, by your partner. Yeah, that was. It didn't get derailed. No, I feel like you answered. <laughs> Thanks it. for having my back. No, <laughs> no, it's related. No, I was just curious. Suck it, because, Mark. Uh, no, the the arguments that you outline in the book uh, for you know uh, easing antitrust. I mean, they they do make total sense, right? And there's ways to sort of adjust. Um, like for example, say you began easing some of those laws. Okay, you could see how it sort of operates, and then maybe you okay, you need to either appeal a law or add a new law to sort of or or amend a law in order to sort of adjust with the new process. It's just that I I, I guess people are very married to not people uh, rather the, the government is very married to uh, what's familiar, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, so I, I guess that's that's a big issue there. But the arguments totally make sense. It's definitely thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the the thing I like about it is, um, so when you're thinking about what mostly people focus on, I mean, it's usually social justice stuff where it's connected to marginalized groups. And then I right. think if you had kind of like a cursory view of your work, you'd be like, oh, why the fuck is this guy defending big business? But I like that as we're getting into it, what you're actually saying is no, everybody benefits. I'm not just defending big business. What I'm ultimately saying is if we kind of ease these laws or relax them, fundamentally, even the consumer is going to benefit as well. What I'm saying is that like, why are we just focused on the consumer as opposed to the businesses because fundamentally fundamentally it's all one big thing anyway is that it well i i kind of want to back up because i realized a, a mistake i made earlier when i when you know before i brought up the utilitarianism stuff i got i got so wrapped up into my my idea of making the pie bigger and then using a bigger chunk of the pie 
mm-hmm. for for you know legitimate government purposes is remember I, I talked about utilitarianism and how you know the utilitarianism justification for antitrust relies on the fact uh, on the fact that the, the the theoretical fact the theor- theoretical fact excuse mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. that you know if you get the perfectly competitive ideal of low prices and high consumer welfare that also generates the most economic output right okay so that would be the largest pie so, you know, the fact that, you know, reduced antitrust enforcement would not necessarily make the pie bigger, but I, I would argue it would make the pie more just. Okay. And that I, I think now that I come back, you know, I wanted to correct that because I misstated that earlier. But I think that also allows me to make the point that it's really, you know, economists have, have classically made this, this uh, distinction between efficiency and equity. Mm-hmm. You know whether an economy should be geared towards towards generating the most output, but not dividing it very equally, or generating a little less amount of output, but making sure it's divided more equally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's been the the main way we've we've portrayed you know free market economies versus command economies in introductory economics classes. Free market economies generate big pie, don't split it up very equally. Mm-hmm. Command economies are less efficient, smaller pie, but it can be split up more equally. And there's there's tons of problems with that. I'm not saying that's perfect at all. But, you know, my point is kind of the same way. You know, antitrust laws may generate a bigger pie, but they don't split it up in a just fashion. Mm-hmm. Because that size of the pie comes at the expense of, of business owners. Right. Okay. It's great for consumers but it's not so great for business owners whose options of exercising their property rights are limited. Right. Okay. So if you relax or eliminate antitrust laws, you may actually end up with a smaller pie, mm-hmm. but that smaller pie would be a more just outcome. Gotcha. The way that I look at it, it'd be more respectful of, of property rights of everybody. That's right. Okay. I got you, man. Okay. Great. Really wonderful endpoint. Okay. Alan, final questions for Mark before we wrap up. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, if we wanted to, of course, follow you, follow your work and, and buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Uh, all my stuff, my website, Twitter, Instagram stuff is under Prof. M.D. White. Uh, the the web, website is profmdwhite.com. Twitter and Instagram are all under Prof. M.D. White. And the book is available, uh, I think, at most bookstores, at least online bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, independent bookstores. This should be, and, and of course, Agenda Publishing and Columbia University Press, which are the publishers. You can buy it through them too. I love it. Mark, thank you so much, dude. Honestly, out of all of the episodes that we've done, you know, especially the Thor one, I really like. This was my favorite, man. This was such an excellent episode. One of my favorites of Great. the year. Yeah, Great. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, time flew. Yeah, I like just looked at the time like, oh, okay. I thought it was one. It, we actually went over. It was yeah, man. Good. Such an interesting back and forth, man. And I appreciate it. Yeah, all it's always great talking to you guys. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, and just FYI, we, as you already know, obviously, because you follow us. So we hardly have economists on. So like, this was really great, man. This is one of the few episodes where we actually tackle that topic. So thank you again. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was great. All right, Mark. We'll talk to you soon, man. Take care. All right. Take care. All right. Awesome. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, where at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.